alcohol dependency, alcohol abuse, substance abuse, drugs. These are some of the contributing factors that may lead to the end of a marriage. My expert here today is Robert Epstein, and he's going to talk with us about how substance abuse factors into the divorce process. Now, Robert is the owner of Epstein Family Law here in Dallas, Texas. He is well known and well recognized by his peers for bringing not only a creative, uh, strategic approach to divorce, but he's also very adept in the courtroom. And so it is my privilege to welcome him here today to talk with us about substance abuse. Thank you so much, Jennifer. It's a privilege to be here today. Well, I'm really um, excited to talk about this issue because I know it's one that so many families struggle with. Um, they may struggle silently for many years before they get help. And I would just love to know kind of at the outset, how do you see substance abuse issues um, impacting families in your practice? Sure. So it's a common theme in divorces that we see. Um, oftentimes, uh, a spouse will come in with uh, a problem, either he or she is uh, uh, experiencing some kind of uh, alcohol use disorder or um, their spouse is, is drinking too much or maybe drugs are involved. And, um, you know, it depends on, you know, who, of course, uh, I'm consulting with. <laughs> Uh, but oftentimes there's a problem of denial if, if you're consulting with the person who uh, has the allegations against him or her, so to speak. Uh, so, you know, sometimes it's a, it's a matter of, uh, you know, accepting uh, the situation and getting them to accept the situation and knowing that, uh, you know, family courts are, are here to help families and uh, they're not designed to be punitive. And while oftentimes messy divorces can lead to people uh, attacking their spouse's character. Uh, we're really there to try to help facilitate uh, a positive relationship between both parents and the children. So when uh, a client understands that, uh, they can be a little bit more uh, open to options for, for them. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you talk about denial because I think when, when I've got a client who has a history or has the allegations have been made about substance abuse, and they may not be aware of it, right? They may not um, think that they have a problem because they're showing up to work on time and you know they're functioning pretty well. Um, but it creates an interesting conversation to have to have. What do you what do you recommend to somebody against whom allegations have been made against against substance abuse? That's a great question. I mean, even if they don't readily admit that they're an alcoholic or they have problems with alcohol or drugs, I still encourage abstinence. Uh, because then it proves that uh, they're abstaining from uh, whatever substance they're being accused of doing too much of. And if they can show abstinence from drugs and alcohol, uh, that will be great for their case, of course, and it will uh, prove the allegations to uh, maybe not be accurate. Uh, and it will also allow for them to really, uh, you know, progress in a way where maybe they're really getting the help that they need, even if even if they're not. Um, you know, admitting that they are uh, alcoholic uh, or, or addicted, even going to a 12-step uh, recovery meeting uh, might be enlightening for them. And it, and it could yield to positive results for them and for their case, even if they're not really admitting to a problem. Exactly. You know, it's one of those things, um, people don't realize this, but I think it's really important to know that when, especially when you're heading into the litigation system, if you're going to have, you're going for temporary orders hearings, you're going to have a hearing and the other side thinks that 
you know, you have a problem, they're going to ask for testing. And you're not going to necessarily have notice of that. I mean, they can do it there at the hearing and ask for it. And the court's going to order it. And, you know, I mean, some of these tests are, I mean, it's pretty easy to test positive on, I think. True. And especially with, you know, the blood testing that they have now, uh, which can detect drinking for a three-week period, uh, binge drinking. So, yeah, a lot of it is subjective, too. You know, how much am I drinking? Is this too much? Uh, it might be too much for somebody, but not too much for somebody else. So abstinence overall is is probably the best uh, strategy, for lack of a better word, uh, because you never know what's going to trigger a positive test with some of the testing that they have out there. So when you say abstinence, are you saying like no alcohol, Robert? <laughs> well, uh, I, I, I am. That's what I would suggest, uh, especially if uh, there are periods of time when, you know, they're alone with the kids, although it's sometimes hard to detect what exactly window of time that would be That's right. when you go back and you look at those tests. Uh, so the best practice would be to, to to abstain completely, especially in the early days. I think of a you know when when you're going in for hearings and everything's kind of getting set, um, it can be really really critical. Abstinence is the, uh, the best policy for sure because if Absolutely. you test positive, then you're going to have all kinds of restrictions to further help you know figure out are you drinking when you have the children or are you not drinking when you have the children that's exactly right and the next thing you know uh you might have to blow into a breathalyzer device and then if you inadvertently miss one of those tests even if you weren't drinking it's going to count as a positive and it just leads to a lot of uh, obstacles down the road i always say if we're having to explain to the court why the test is wrong we we're not in, we're not in a good situation that's 100 percent correct yeah um so now let's switch a little bit and talk about the spouse who's concerned that their soon-to-be ex has a problem. How do you handle that situation? That's a great question. I mean, first of all, I like to recommend Al-Anon for that spouse. It's a great uh, resource for spouses and relatives and friends and family of, of, of active alcoholics or addicts so they can uh, find a support network of uh, other uh, similarly situated people uh, going through uh, what they're going through. And, and that can be invaluable. Now, from a family court perspective, um, I, I like to make sure that they are uh, ensuring that the children are safe, that they're not riding in a vehicle with somebody who might have a drug or alcohol problem, uh, and making sure that they're having maybe some other supervision around, maybe a, a grandparent or a family member or a mutual friend or something like that. Yeah. And um, I think that's the, the primary issue is the safety of the child. And, you know, it's one thing for somebody to come in and have a long list of why their, you know, their spouse is a horrible, horrible human being. But then they turn around and leave them with the spouse unattended. That doesn't isn't really consistent with somebody who really thinks that there is a safety issue. That's right. And then and then that spouse uh, or parent really runs the risk for their case that they're not legitimately concerned if, if, if there are times when they may have left the children uh, alone with that uh, uh, parent who does have the drug and alcohol problem. Yeah. Now, if you detect, I mean, if your client comes in and there maybe has been some really recent issues that have been really problematic, maybe it's a DUI or some other types of things, what, um, what kind of emergency steps can you take to help get relief for the family? Sure. You can request a temporary restraining order that would uh, prohibit the parent from having unsupervised contact with the, or, or possession of the children, unsupervised time with the children. Um, and if, if there is a, a legal history of, uh, of alcohol or drug-related problems and it's pretty recent, then, then that's likely to, uh, to be granted that, that request. Uh, in addition to any kind of uh, endangerment of the children, if, if, uh, if one of the parents 
uh, left the child in a situation where the child was at risk of any kind of uh, physical danger, uh, maybe drinking and driving with the children or even threatening to do so, that could, that could result in, in getting, being able to get a temporary restraining order to, to prevent uh, that parent from being around the child without some kind of supervision. It's, I think it's important for people to understand like the different sort of phases in a divorce proceeding or, or in a suit affecting a parent-child relationship. So that temporary restraining order, oftentimes the courts will err on the side of protecting the children, but it's really a temporary Band-Aid, right? And it kind of, it just covers the initial couple weeks so we can get in for a full hearing in front of the court. That's true, yeah. Um, once we're once we're in front of the court, how do how do you find in general in your experience that courts respond to allegations of substance abuse? So I, I think what they what they will usually do to err on the side of caution is if there's a positive uh, drug or alcohol test, uh, then you know the court may order periodic testing, random testing, may order a, a, a breathalyzer device known as Soberlink to, to be utilized during time with the, with the children for that parent. And, and then if there's, you know, maybe uh, somewhere between, uh, I would say maybe 90 days and, and, and six months of, of clean and sober uh, testing, proof of that, then, you know, maybe that will be discontinued if, if, if the if the uh, parent can show that you know there really hasn't been a, a problem with that, right? And I and I that that six months or nine months or six weeks or whatever can be pretty arduous. I mean, it can be pretty difficult. Like you were saying, things happen with the device; it's not working or whatever, and it can be problematic. So it's best to avoid that at all in the first stage. Agreed. And and I also think you know one of the things that could help is is uh, to you know to have a support network during that time. And, uh, you know, even if the, if the parent, you know, isn't readily admitting that he or she is an alcoholic or an addict, even to just go to AA meetings and have a sign-in sheet is proof that you're actually, you know, concentrated on this, on this problem. And that's one of the things that people often kind of share with me is that a concern is that, well, is it going to look bad if I'm going to my therapist? Is it going to look bad if I'm going to AA meetings? And what is your response? I mean, what have you seen? How do you see the courts treat that kind of? No, if anything, it's an asset yeah. to the to the case for that parent who's going through those issues. I, I think that uh, uh, it can only help. And, and family courts believe in second chances, and they they're very supportive of recovery. If anything, if they're not working a program uh, or if they're not seeking mental health treatment, then uh, then the judge may be concerned about that. That's exactly right. And I, I think you're right. The, the second chance, I mean, everybody loves a good rehabilitation story. The courts actually want parents to be having a relationship with their children. And so for parents who are willing to do the work, I think that that's often, you know, they're rewarded for that. Absolutely. Now, you know, as I think about that, I also think about sort of the reverse of the parent who is doesn't have the history of substance abuse, but they've been in this toxic relationship for a very long time. Their partner goes off to rehab. The partner's doing AA programs. Their partner's going to counseling, and they're they're kind of on a path towards healing. the The person who who wasn't the the didn't have the problem. You know, there's still a lot of issues there to deal with. And I'm so glad you mentioned Al-Anon because that's really a fabulous program. Absolutely. No, no question about it. And that's not to say that, you know, the parent who doesn't have those issues needs to like the other parent. Uh, but, but I think generally wanting to strive for the same goal for, for both parents to have a healthy relationship with the child or children, 
the kids need that. And, yeah. and I think that that's, that's what the focus needs to be on. And then talking about kids, what kind of support is available for children if they have a parent who's been, you know, struggling with substance abuse? That's a, that's a great question. I think that oftentimes a, a play therapist for, you know, particularly young children would be good um, or just any kind of uh, mental health professional who has experience with uh, A, families going through conflict and, and B, uh, addiction and recovery and that sort of thing. I think that would be an asset for any child who's experiencing this Abs in their home. Absolutely. And, you know, there are so many resources available. And I think if you are struggling with um, a substance abuse issues in your family, one of the things to know is that we see a lot of that in divorce courts. I mean, it just is a common problem. And so you're not alone in it, whether you're the one who's, you know, having the accusations made or um, you're the spouse who's been living with it for a long time. There's really not shame associated with this. No, not at all. And, and in fact, if you go to those support networks, you're going to find other like-minded people, <laughs> similarly situated people, and it's going to be relieving to, to be able to uh, you know, have that type of uh, network to be able to depend upon. Now, we've talked a little bit about sort of what happens in court and how the courts view that. Um, I, I guess I would ask you first, before we move off of that, who are some of the players that we're going to see in a courtroom when it comes, when we're dealing with alcohol and dependency issues? Sure. So um, a, a, a child custody evaluator may be uh, uh, testifying at a, at, a, at a final hearing uh, regarding recommendations for the, for the uh, parenting time for, for both uh, parents to have with the children. Uh, we can also see a, a drug and alcohol uh, counselor, uh, somebody who uh, is, is therapeutically treating uh, the, the, the parent who has the addiction. Uh, we could also see potentially uh, a drug testing uh, or alcohol testing uh, lab uh, uh, custodian of records testifying to the authenticity of, of uh, drug and alcohol testing results. And then furthermore, we could see a lot of people from AA. Uh, sponsors sometimes make the best witnesses for people who are going through recovery. Um, sometimes there are more people than just that uh, parent's sponsor uh, who are willing to testify that so-and-so uh, is showing up and, and really working a good program. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think um, those specialists that we call in to testify, I mean, that, that's certainly a financial factor associated with that. So the, these, these battles can be very expensive in the court system. That's true. Um, all right, let's switch gears a little bit because um, court is one place where these issues get hammered out. Um, and obviously that's necessary. People you know, can't reach resolution outside of the courtroom. But there's another process called the collaborative divorce process. Yes. And I want to talk a little bit about how you've seen substance abuse issues handled in collaborative divorce and, and what your opinion is about that. Sadly, I haven't seen it handled collaboratively enough, uh, and it's actually something that could be resolved very effectively in the collaborative law process. Oftentimes, these issues get litigated where somebody wants to go to court and seek an emergency order, and, and that sometimes is necessary. But I think that if you have a spouse uh, who is maybe acknowledging a problem, uh, not in denial, uh, collaborative law could be an excellent option to have uh, a team of professionals you know, a lawyer for each uh, spouse and then a neutral mental health professional and a neutral financial professional assist this family in resolving the issues and, you know, really being a cheerleader for 
um, you know, whoever is experiencing drug or alcohol problems and, and helping them in their recovery. You know, one of the <clears throat> things that I've really appreciated about using the collaborative divorce process and substance abuse issues is the fact that we can deal with things honestly. We can have very frank conversations and where in litigation, you know, you're, in, you're on the defense. If you're accused of having a substance abuse issues, now you've got to defend yourself against that. Do the right things, get the right counselors, be sober, abstain. Um, but in collaborative, we're really together as a team. Everybody's focused on really finding the best resolution. Absolutely. Yeah, <clears throat> mutually aligned goals. Yeah. And so you're not in that, you're, you're, you're not encouraging denial. You're not encouraging this defensive posture instead of, it's really looking at what what's going to be best to help this family. Yeah, absolutely. Being candid about the problems. You know, I had um, many years ago, I had a client who we started the collaborative divorce process and the decision was made that she would go to rehab and she went to rehab. And, you know, we could put a, we could put a hold on the entire process and it really allowed her to time to go and heal and to work on the issues. And then also to establish trust, to establish a foundation of, uh, you know, that period of sobriety. And the outcome was dramatically different in that case than it uh, would have been so. if it had been in litigation. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. that's 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 wonderful. <laughs> that's how it should be handled. It really is. If it can be. Yeah. And I think, you know, as professionals, when we have to go to battle, we certainly go to battle and, you know, you hold people accountable and cross-examine them in the courtroom. But, you know, to be able to approach these problems from a compassionate place, it's really focused on healing, I think is a much better service to families. hundred percent. I agree with that. Um, now you are open about the fact, Robert, that substance uh, abuse is something that you've uh, dealt with in your own life. So I just would invite you if you, you know, to share with us kind of your own experience. Sure. So, uh, about 10 years ago, I realized that, uh, I had a problem with, with alcohol that I was drinking too much. And, um, you know, it was just creating more problems for me than benefits. And, uh, I wanted to do something about it, and fortunately, I did. And uh, I called one of the uh, experts who historically a lot of family court professionals have relied upon in the past, uh, a gentleman named Mickey Bickers, and I told him, I think I have a problem. And he said, what do you want to do about it? And I said, well, I want to stop. And so he took me to my first AA meeting, and I've been going since, and that was about 10 years ago. That's awesome. Thanks. Yeah, congratulations. And how has that sort of impacted um, your practice in terms of dealing with substance abuse issues? Well, it certainly uh, makes me uh, more knowledgeable, I think, about what, you know, what a recovery program is like and, and what clients are going through when they're working the steps and, and they're going to meetings and, and getting a sponsor. Uh, so, you know, I have that firsthand experience now. But I also think that it really makes me even more passionate about helping families going through these issues because I've seen what dividends it's paid me in my life over the past 10 years. And I would want that for anyone else who, you know, is, is also wanting to get better. And, you know, you know what it was like at that crossroads where um, you knew if you didn't take action, that things would, would go down a road that you didn't want to go down. Absolutely. Um, and what, what was it for you? Was it, I mean, were you able to kind of envision a different future at, when you were sitting at that crossroads or just kind of avoid the pain that you were experiencing? Yes, uh, I was really, I was at a crossroads. I was one of the, the not yet, so to speak, meaning that I hadn't yet received uh, a, a DUI or a DWI. Uh, I hadn't yet 
lost my marriage or my job. And I think that had I continued to drink, I would have progressively gotten to those places because my drinking progressed over time, got worse and worse. It got to a point where I realized I couldn't even stop just drinking on Mondays and Tuesdays because I said, well, what if I just stopped drinking on Mondays and Tuesdays? I couldn't do that. And then I really knew I was in trouble. Mm -hmm. And so uh, for me, it was a matter of wanting to really uh, keep my career as a lawyer. I love what I do. Uh, more importantly, I love my wife. I wanted to stay married. Uh, she didn't present it as an ultimatum. This was something that I just did on my own. And I'm glad that I did because, you know, since I've done that, uh, my, my life has been immeasurably blessed over the last 10 years. And so I'm just, just by way of kind of comparison, where were you then and where are you now? So I think 10 years ago, you know, I was, I was probably a pretty resentful um, person, you know, just uh, in a place where I wasn't very happy. Um, I was constantly comparing myself to other people. Um, I was dissatisfied with, um, you know, how I, how I felt. I, I was uh, not accepting certain situations that were beyond my control. And then I learned how to practice acceptance, which is really the first step in any kind of 12-step program. And I realized that I'm not really in control of those things that uh, I have no power over and that that's okay. And so learning these things along with abstaining from alcohol uh, allowed me to uh, maintain uh, my abstinence one day at a time from drinking alcohol, but also allowed me to really get in the right headspace to know that there's more to life than just maximizing pleasure and minimizing pain, which is really what I strived to do when I was drinking so that uh, I could really go forward in a way uh, where I could achieve my goals and, and, and know what those are and really, um, you know, go after them. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. I know that it will be helpful because that's just the way that these stories work in life is, you know, to, to be able to um, be vulnerable and, you know, kind of let your guard down and let people know that there's hope for them. Well, it's my pleasure, Jennifer. Thank you for allowing me to share the story. And I, you know, wish everyone who's out there who might, uh, you know, want to get better uh, a chance to do so by uh, allowing themselves to be vulnerable and talk with somebody and uh, give themselves a chance to really improve their situation in life. That's awesome. I have one last question for sure. you before we wrap up. And that is, um, what message of hope do you have for somebody who's struggling right now in a family with a spouse who either is dependent on alcohol or they themselves are wondering if they have a problem? So uh, it's one day at a time. And that's something I learned in AA. And it's something I practice every day in life uh, as, a, as a sober individual. One day at a time. You don't have to know all the answers right now. You don't have to have it all figured out right now. And it's okay that you can't control all the outcomes. You just practice life in a way where you uh, get through one thing at a time mm -hmm. and you know, look at the goals that you have for your future. And even if you don't really know what those are right now, that's okay. Just know that you don't have to drink today. You don't have to drug today. And you can focus and move forward with your life in a positive direction by just, you know, allowing things to be that you don't have control over. I love your phrase, the practice of life. <laughs> that's, the practice really, of life. that's really beautiful. Every day is a new day to it's, practice. That's right. It's progress, <laughs> not perfection. Amen. Well, thank yeah. you so much. If you want to learn more about Robert Epstein and um, to get in touch with him, learn about his firm, his practice, or how he can help your family, um, we're going to include a link to his website, and we hope that you will reach out and be sure to subscribe and tune in for future episodes. We thank you for sharing this time with us.